This video is sponsored by The Great Courses Plus, a subscription on-demand video learning service where you can enjoy lectures from the very best professors from all over the world. But more on that at the end of the video. Before we start this video, I'd like to just give a quick shout out to a fantastic podcast that you need to listen to. The History of Byzantium is definitely one of the best history podcasts out there. As many of you know, ancient Rome never fell in the East. And with the history of Byzantium, creator Robin Pearson is continuing the gripping story. From the barbarian invasions of the 5th century, all the way up until the final fall of Constantinople in 1453. This podcast was actually part of the inspiration for starting History Time in the first place. So it's great to be affiliated with it, and in a way, come full circle. So, if you like Roman or medieval history, you need to go and check out The History of Byzantium, wherever you get your podcasts from. In the summer of 960, a vast armada landed on the Arab-held island of Crete. Exact numbers of the expedition remain difficult to establish, though estimates range from 30,000 all the way up to the high number of 60,000 soldiers and sailors, during a time when most European armies numbered no more than a few thousand men. This, surely, was one of the most colossal invasion forces ever raised during the early Middle Ages. Swords unsheathed, colourful banners from the Balkans to the marches of Asia unfurled, they had come from the Eastern Roman Empire to recapture the island after well over a century of rule by the incoming Arab elite who'd seized it during the dark days of the 9th century. Up until a few decades before this time, Byzantium had been on a seemingly endless defensive campaign, fought for over 300 years against the all-powerful Islamic caliphates of the Middle East. Faced with insurmountable odds, Byzantine generals had little choice but to avoid open battle at all costs. Instead, choosing to whittle down the Caliphal armies via guerrilla warfare and ambuscades in the harsh mountains of Anatolia. But now, after all that time, in the wake of the collapse of the Abbasid Caliphate, coupled with a lasting peace with the Bulgarians in the Balkans, the Empire was going on the offensive once again. With a powerful new dynasty at the helm in the form of the Macedonian clan, for the first time since the days of Heraclius, some well over 300 years before, Roman armies would face their enemies in open battle once more. Of course, with the amassing of a fleet of such a size, it just wouldn't be feasible to get the element of surprise. Yet, the Cretan Arabs, now dangerously overexposed by the loss of their Abbasid patrons, and the destruction of the neighbouring Tarsiot fleet in a conflagration of Greek fire, achieved by the daring general Basil Hexamelites. Perhaps sailing aboard some 400 ships, the Armada successfully made the short crossing from mainland Greece in 960. We don't know much about the initial landing, 
but we do know that it was contested. Troop transports landed first, perhaps manned by Varangian Rus mercenaries, adapt at amphibious assaults. Planks were dropped directly onto the beaches from the landing craft, so that elite heavy cavalrymen could ride straight off the boats to cause havoc in the defending lines of Arab soldiers. Within weeks, faced with the crushing numerical superiority of the Roman army, the defending forces, many of whom could trace their lineages on the island well over a century back, were reduced to fighting a guerrilla campaign in the mountains, much like the Byzantines had once done against the Abbasids. The capital of Chandax, a magnificent city founded by those Arab invaders some 140 years before, was surrounded and put to siege. Colossal siege engines dragged to the walls and set on a course of constant barrage. Any civilians unfortunate enough to still be outside the city, Muslims and Christians alike, the latter still being the overwhelming majority on the island, were put to the sword, forcing others to flee into the city, thus overextending its food and water supplies even further. Arab guerrillas continued to harass the Roman army throughout the siege, launching ultimately fruitless, yet no less brave attacks against the Romans. Yet, the Romans could afford to wait. They'd already waited centuries for this moment, and for their commander, the war was absolutely personal. Before long, the decapitated heads of those outside the walls began to be hurled inside the city, allegedly so that those inside might recognise their relatives. This was psychological warfare, 10th century style. They even launched a lame donkey over the walls, with the leader of the Roman army supposedly joking to one of his men how it soared like an eagle. Desperately sending for aid, the Emir of Crete beseeched the Fatimids of Northern Africa and other powers to answer his call to arms, but to no avail. The winter was harsh, with the Romans too beginning to go hungry. Yet supplies arrived in the nick of time from the mainland, and the siege raged on. For this was no forlorn hope, but a meticulously organised campaign with the full support of the imperial capital and its latest Macedonian emperor, Romanos II. By the spring of 961, a new strategy was attempted, with sappers and tunnelers now being drafted in from other areas of the empire. They immediately set to work, undermining various parts of the gargantuan city walls, and by the 6th of March, they got in. Within a matter of minutes, indiscriminate and brutal slaughter of the already half-starved population began. Christians and Muslims alike died en masse. And before long, the last shreds of resistance crumbled, returning the island to imperial control. In the very next year, the momentum of the Crete campaign was carried over into further military expeditions to reclaim lands in the east, which had once belonged to the empire. 
brilliant and daring strategies were employed to recapture the cities of Cilicia and southeastern Anatolia, frontline of jihad against the empire since the mid-7th century. But who was behind this extraordinary resurgence of Byzantine power? There were many responsible, of course, but one general in particular, the man commanding all of these daring exploits, deserves particular mention. Nicephorus Phocas, an exceptional general from a distinguished Greek family. The policy of raiding and undermining enemies rather than simply conquering lands that could not be effectively held and would only be lost again earned Phocas a unique title during this time. Earned not because of the colour of his skin, but due to the terrified faces of his enemies, Phocas became known as the Pale Death of the Saracens. Not just a battlefield commander, but a strategist too, whose literary works, thought to be battlefield manuals, handed out to his men, outlining what to do in any given situation, remarkably survived to the present. His reforms transformed the army from capable to crushing, conquering more land than anyone since the days of Justinian in the 6th century. A stoic, religious zealot, cold and unbending, yet nearly undefeated during his entire military career, Phocas wasn't an emperor yet. He had no rightful claim, but soon he would be. In the first decades of the 10th century, the once all-powerful Abbasid Caliphate began to finally fall apart, replaced by a multitude of localised Islamic dynasties. As a result, the formerly harassed soldiers of Byzantium, along with their local allies, began to recapture frontier positions and annex territories in a gradual creeping frontier. border with the fragmenting caliphate had changed little in the two centuries after the Arab conquests. Border skirmishes, cattle raids and occasionally uneasy peace. It still ran diagonally across Asia Minor from the Taurus Mountains to Trebizond on the Black Sea. Progress remained incredibly slow, brutal and dangerous with entire populations regularly uprooted and replaced. The entire Arabian Banu Habib tribe, for example, losers of a struggle against the Hamdanid emirs of Aleppo, converted to Christianity en masse and settled in the borderlands of the empire. Other areas were repopulated with Armenian and Roman colonists, operating as frontier soldiers in return for land. Military manuals of the time talk of the need to drive out farmers, to destroy crops and blockade towns so that food couldn't get in, thus starving and terrorising the local people into submission. Religious divisions further lent the violence and an element of sectarianism. Many were the old scores that needed to be settled. This wasn't pretty, 
It was systematic violence and terror instilled on the native populations of the region in order to force them to submit to imperial rule rather than their local emirs. In 934, the Byzantine general, John Kukuas, conquered the city of Melitene, thus bringing an important regional strategic position back into the empire, and with it, vicious reprisals against the local Muslim population. By the 950s, the frontier stretched down to the Euphrates, in striking distance to Syria, almost leaving the Cilician plain surrounded and cut off. This was once a bitter battleground, flooded with Islamic fighters from all over the Caliphate, willing to give their lives in the fight against the unbelievers in the so-called House of War. Like the frontier settlers for the Romans, these people had been given land in return for service during the 8th, 9th and early 10th centuries, and they formed the front line of Jihad. Fleets from Tarsus had regularly fanned out into the Aegean during this time to raid and pillage, mirroring the land armies similarly pushing out through the Cilician gates to lay waste to Anatolia. Now, however, cut off from the rump Abbasid state still clinging on in Baghdad and increasingly looking to the new rising power of the Hamdanids of Aleppo, Cilicia and Tarsus was threatened with total isolation. Though the Arabs weren't finished yet, not by a long shot. For a military adventurer not unlike Phocas had arisen to prominence in the region from his power base of Aleppo. By 955, the Eastern Roman Empire faced four potential front lines, though all weren't active simultaneously. The first was Bulgaria in the north, in centuries past a gargantuan threat, though now mostly pacified by treaty. Second was the Islamic Emirate of Crete in the south, and finally were the emirates of Tarsus and Hamdanid Syria in the southeast. By far the most dangerous of the bunch was Syria, with its leader Saif al-Dawala, hailed from Egypt to Khorasan as the Sword of Islam. Saif was a legend in the Islamic world. For them, all they'd known for 25 years was political fragmentation and the news of gradually advancing Christians. Though in reality, Saif could do little against the rising Buyids in Mesopotamia, breakaway Turkic generals of the Caliphate, and the Fatimids of Northern Africa, who increasingly interfered in Egypt and Syria. The news of his successes against the Byzantines, coupled with his intentional image of holy warrior, skyrocketed his reputation, leading to thousands of warriors from all over the Islamic world rallying together to his cause. In firm control of Aleppo and Mosul, the two most important cities of Syria, Saif attacked into Roman lands 
on behalf of the still symbolically powerful Abbasids, repeatedly attempting to regain control of Melatine. This is when the Focas family step into the fray. Nicephorus Phocas had been born in around 912 to a distinguished Cappadocian Greek family which had a reputation for producing effective military commanders. Based in their Anatolian heartlands, his brothers, father, uncles and grandfather had all served as commanders of the Byzantine field army before him. With their origins paralleling the rise of the Macedonian dynasty in the capital, during the latter half of the 9th century. Under the firm hands of the Macedonian emperors, beginning with Basil I, said to have been born a commoner, the empire came back from the brink of total collapse to be a world power again. Nicephorus's father, Bardas, fought well against a Rus raid in 940, and by 945, under the emperor Constantine VII, his son was appointed as the military governor of central Anatolia, an extremely prestigious command, which he would build upon to launch his astonishing career. We get brief hints of the man behind the legend in the Byzantine sources. One story goes that Phocas had been married as a young man, but lost both wife and infant son, and afterwards gave himself up to the ascetic life. said to have been celibate and vegetarian for most of his adult life, as well as doggedly insisting his cavalrymen pray with him before every battle. It was often said that Phocas himself would have become a hermit had life itself not got in the way. Much like one of his uncles, who was a hermit and he would visit from time to time. Nevertheless, when the aging Bardas suffered a serious wound in battle in 953, the Emperor must have seen something in Nicephorus, as he was called upon to be his unofficial replacement, acting as the chief strategist for the Eastern Field Army. The enemy who had inflicted that defeat on Bardas, of course, had been safe Aldala. With Bardas only surviving, after his household warriors fought a bitterly contested rearguard action to get the distinguished general off the battlefield, receiving grievous losses in the process. And not only that, but the youngest Phocas brother, Constantine, was captured, carried off to languish in an Aleppan prison cell. A couple of years previously, Saif had rallied together a large force from Aleppo, Cilicia, Syria and various local tribes in order to attack deep into the interior of Asia Minor. On their return, however, they were ambushed by Leo Phocas, Nicephorus's brother, who inflicted a textbook defeat upon them. Saif was soon back, however, with more armies this time apparently set on locating and defeating the Byzantine armies, 
rather than simple raiding like before. Bardas suffered significant defeats in both 952 and 953, with the latter resulting in his son being captured. Though Saif himself claimed that no foul play was involved, Constantine soon died in prison, sparking a brutal reprisal campaign along the borderlands and within the empire as thousands of Muslims were massacred. By this time, Bardas was nearly 80 years old. Remarkably, he'd served the empire for over 60 years. It was now time for him to hand control to the younger generation, one of his brood of general sons. The stoic Nicephorus was chosen for the job, though his brother Leo remained an important asset. Although Nicephorus's command began with a serious defeat in 954 whilst fighting for his father, he learned from his mistakes and was able to win a series of significant victories in Syria in the years that followed, whilst simultaneously honing his corps of troops into an elite fighting force. The stage was set for one of the greatest comebacks in all of history. The summer of 955 was spent moulding the army into a crack fighting force. Intensive training drills took precedent and a new corps of super heavy cavalry known as the Clebanophorio was created. Commanded by Phocas himself, this elite corps of professional cataphracts was made up of militarily gifted sons from the upper echelons of society. Heavy cavalry such as these would be the basis for all Byzantine armies for centuries to come. Good discipline, fighting spirit and battlefield skills were all re-established in spades, moulding the army into the most effective Roman fighting force since the days of Justinian and Belisarius some 400 years earlier. In addition to the native soldiers from the provinces of the empire, the Emperor Constantine released funds to recruit foreign mercenaries en masse, on a wider scale than ever seen before. Significant contingents of Turkic light cavalrymen, drawn from the northern shores of the Black Sea, marched side by side with Armenian men-at-arms. In times of trouble, mercenaries could be, and often were, more of a hindrance than an asset. But this, despite Saif's still constant attacks, was a time of high morale and strong leadership. The geopolitical atmosphere was finally right for daring generals to launch ambitious attacks directly into enemy territory. One of this new breed of offensive generals rose to fame in 955 too, when he launched a wildly successful yet hard-fought battle into enemy territory. John Zimiskis, a dashing soldier and gambler who, unlike Phocas, favoured rapid and bold strategies. Like many in the military at the time, Zimiskis is thought to have had Armenian ancestry though he had married into the Phocas family, becoming an asset and Nicephorus's nephew. With 956 came more good news for the empire. 
three-pronged assault by the Focads had led to the capture of Saif's cousin. A propaganda victory the Emperor couldn't afford to pass up. He was publicly paraded around Constantinople before being carefully placed under the boot of the Emperor, a symbolic gesture of victory harking back to the ancient days of Rome. Meanwhile, another daring young commander, this one an admiral of the fleet, Basil Hexamilites, launched a lightning strike on the port city of Tarsus, destroying several suburbs of the city with Greek fire, along with much of the Tarsian fleet. For the first time since the Arab conquests 300 years before, the Byzantines regained naval superiority over their waters. In 957, Nicephorus attacked again, this time seizing the city of Hadath. But in the first hints of the future strategy that would make him so successful, he made no attempts to hold the place, merely loading up all of the plunder his men could carry and returning back to Roman territory. In 959, the Emperor Constantine VII, a quiet survivor who had weathered two decades of a military usurper during his younger years, died in the capital. He was succeeded by his young son, Romanos II. Just 21 years old at the time, but a promising young man seemingly happy to pursue his father's patronage of the Eastern Field Army. Nicephorus was finally named Supreme Commander of the Eastern Armies, whilst his brother Leo took command of the Army of the West. The Focads were now effectively in control of the entire military of the Empire. Early 960, Leo launched an offensive deep into Cilicia, raiding as far south as Tarsus and defeating Saif's forces once again. Nicephorus, however, was elsewhere. The new emperor had another target in mind, probably masterminded by the influential court eunuch Joseph Bringas. A full-scale invasion of the island of Crete was on the cards, and Nicephorus was chosen to lead it. Back during the 820s, taking advantage of rampant civil war in the empire, an ambitious fleet of exiles from Al-Andalus had conquered the province of Crete. From there, they'd raided throughout the Aegean opening the door for other Arabs from all over Northern Africa and the Middle East to launch similar conquests on islands all over the Mediterranean. In 904, a Syrian Arab fleet even managed to take Thessaloniki on the Greek mainland, selling many of its inhabitants into slavery on Crete. Countless attempts were made to reconquer the island, first in the 820s and later in 843, 866, 911 and 949, yet all to no avail. The last invasion in recent memory had been a costly and miserable failure. But now, with the defeat of the Arab fleet at Tarsus, the opportunity had to be taken. It might not arise again. 
The Crete offensive was a daring operation, pulling forces from all over the Balkans. If it failed, it could spell utter disaster, leaving the European lands of the Empire completely exposed. Romanos was throwing all of his cards on the table. Preparations began only in 959, and by 960 the assembled fleet made the crossing from Ephesus. In the brutal campaign that followed, Nicephorus Phocas distinguished himself as an utterly ruthless, though brilliant commander. A complete success, huge amounts of wealth were carried back to the capital, and the island reincorporated into the empire. The Muslim minority on the island were driven out, enslaved, or for the wealthiest in society, forced to convert. Curiously, the son of the Emir, Animas, is thought to not only have converted, but his sons became generals in the next generation. Interestingly, the sources suggest that Phocas did attempt to stop the worst excesses of his men, although this seems to have been driven not by compassion, but concern at the potential pollution wrought through the raping of infidel women. Upon his return to the capital in 961, the now famous Nicephorus was denied the usual honour of a triumph. Merely being granted a standing ovation at the Hippodrome. The Emperor Romanos's father had been dominated by a famous general in his younger years, Romanos Lacapinos. With his dynasty very nearly being pushed out of power entirely, the new emperor may have been concerned about the same situation happening again. Thus, despite the fact that pretty much all of the other major generals of the time had received imperial triumphs in the capital, Nicephorus, undeterred, travelled back east. Now with an even larger and better equipped army than ever before. Of course, to the east, Saif had taken advantage of the notable absence of Nicephorus, by again attempting to invade Roman lands with a gigantic army, probably numbering some 30,000 men the last of the great Arab invasions into Anatolia. Leo too had been absent at the time, forced to deal with an incursion of Magyars near the Danube. Though soon enough, he raced across the entirety of Anatolia to launch a now customary ambush upon safe in the Adrasos Pass as he made his way home. Much of Saif's army was destroyed and he himself only made it back to Syria by abandoning all of the plunder he and his men had taken. By mid-961, the men from Crete began returning to their posts. Nicephorus marched directly into Cilicia, seizing the city of Anazarbos by February 962, and beginning the encirclement of the city of Tarsus, now definitively in Saif's hands. By December, astonishingly, Nicephorus went even further, joining up with his nephew Zimisces to march directly on Saif's now overexposed capital of Aleppo. 
taking the city completely unawares, they ravaged it for a week, inflicting as much damage as possible. All the while, Safe and his inner circle were forced to watch from the humiliating safety of the impregnable citadel at the heart of the city. Eventually, the Romans withdrew, taking thousands of captives with them, content in their total destabilization of the Emirate. Safe was done for, his reputation destroyed. No longer was he the sword of Islam, and almost immediately his subordinates and family members would begin to fight amongst themselves. Though he remained in power, he would face internal rebellions until his death in 967. After a century of preparation, the way was finally open for a full reconquest of the eastern lands of the empire. On his way back to his frontier base at Caesarea, Nicephorus received word from the capital. The emperor was dead. In March 963, at the age of just 26, apparently due to the excesses of his debauched lifestyle, although rumours of his assassination by his wife abounded, the Emperor Romanos had passed away. Though he had already crowned his two young sons, Basil II and Constantine VIII, as his co-emperors, though they were five and three years old. As a result, their mother, Theophano, was made regent to rule on their behalf until they came of age. Though this arrangement was disputed by many high-ranking nobles and courtiers, and threatened to cause massive instability throughout the empire, a boy emperor was never good news. Within a matter of weeks, on July the 2nd, Nicephorus Phocas was held up by his victorious soldiers and commanders such as John Zimisces, and spontaneously proclaimed the new Roman Emperor. Faced with the infants in the Imperial Palace, there were few who could dispute the decision, though likewise Few relished the confusing and potentially dangerous civil conflict that could easily follow. Nicephorus's uncle Leo had tried to seize the throne a few decades earlier, and ended his days a blinded and tonsured monk as a result. As Nicephorus and his army approached the capital, they knew the stakes. Thanks to his great popularity, however, upon arriving in the city, Apart from those formerly in Romanos's inner circles, such as the eunuch Joseph Bringas, little opposition awaited him. Despite outcries from various groups in the capital, on 16th of August, Nicephorus Phocas, 51 years old at the time, was successfully proclaimed co-emperor alongside the two young sons of Romanos. For he had already made an arrangement with the regent Theophano, marrying her in a symbolic gesture of unity. For more than a year to come, Nicephorus would remain in the capital, appointing John Zimisces to his old position of domestic of the East. Now in full command of the empire, 
Nicephorus was able to finally realise his ambitious plans for the reconquest of the East. Between 964 and 966, softened up by wide-ranging expeditions launched by Zimisces, Nicephorus led a force numbering some 40,000 men into Cilicia, Mesopotamia and Syria, reaching as far south as Tripoli in the Holy Land, raiding and looting most of the Arab fortresses along the way. Of course, along the way in 965, the final conquest of Cilicia came, with Zimisces, Leo and Nicephorus all leading armies for the final coup de grace. When the governor of Tarsus, loosely aligned to the Hamdanids of Aleppo, swiftly offered his surrender, he was rejected. Nicephorus promised him the sword instead. What followed was an outright massacre. A supply fleet from Egypt arrived just days too late to find the Imperial Navy blockading the port. Just like in Chandax on Crete, those who survived the sack of the city were either forced to convert or die. Lines of Muslim refugees flooded out from the war zone to begin new lives in Syria and Mesopotamia. Whereas Christians, some of them Armenian settlers given land in return for military service, whilst others were Christians formerly living under Muslim rule, rushed into the region to take the place of the exiled Muslims. Finally, the reconquest of coastal Cilicia was complete. Forced to watch events playing out from his new capital of Martyropolis, Saif al-Dwala could do little to halt the Roman war machine. Aleppo, once the spear tip of jihad, was now a ghost town. Though volunteers for holy war did continue to arrive in the region, mostly from Khorasan. They were too few and too late. Some 5,000 of them arrived in 964, though quickly disbanded when they realised just how outnumbered they were. In a curious precursor to the Crusades, a far larger force attempted to get through to the region in 966, though as they passed through the windswept Persian plains, they entered into a disagreement with the Buyid commanders at the city of Rey, ending up sacking that city instead before disbanding. By late 966, it was fairly clear Saif was on his own. Meanwhile, Nicephorus's subordinate, Nikitas Chalkoutsis, retook the island of Cyprus for the empire. First conquered by the Umayyad Caliphate in the 680s, for more than 200 years, the strategically important island had been ruled in a unique situation where taxes were jointly shared between Romans and Muslims. Though the majority population remained Christian, Roman Cyprus had been divided into two parts, with each side agreeing no military forces would be placed on the island. Nicephorus brought this agreement to an end, throwing out Muslim rule entirely for the first time since the Arab conquests of the 7th century, the Romans had regained total mastery over their seas. A similarly ambitious campaign was also launched into Sicily at this time, 
Though as much as they tried, the Byzantines couldn't be everywhere at once. After a series of setbacks and defeats, by 967, peace was finally declared once more. Sicily, at least, would remain in Muslim hands. Curiously, amidst all of these military campaigns, John Zimisces becomes remarkably absent, for he had been quietly arrested in 965 for reasons that remain largely obscure today, and placed under house arrest on his estate in Asia Minor. He would remain there in comfortable obscurity for the next four years. When Saif al Duala finally died in early 967, Aleppo and the once mighty Hamdanid Emirate became a vassal state to the Byzantines. It is also around this time that the Armenian state of Taron was annexed, the first of many to follow over the century to come. Nevertheless, despite all of these conquests, Due to the great expenses of his military ventures, the stoic and unbending Nicephorus was forced to pursue austere economic and social policies at home. This had the effect of fairly quickly eroding away his popularity with the people of the city. Rather than trying to combat this growing discontent, Phocas instead strengthened the palace walls when in the capital, spending his days isolated from the masses. In 965, Bulgarian envoys arrived at the imperial court. Since the time of the mighty Bulgarian Tsar Simeon several decades earlier, the empire had been paying yearly tribute to Bulgaria in order to keep the peace. Though the glory days of Simeon were now over, the Bulgarians were still one of the most important and largest Christian states of Eastern Europe. Yet, much had changed over the last decade. Instead of paying the requested tribute, according to some Byzantine sources, Nicephorus had the envoys beaten and sent home in disgrace. He may have then called upon the Rus prince Svatislav in the far north to attack Bulgaria from the rear. In a masterful yet dangerous strategy of divide and rule. If Nicephorus had been involved, as Leo the Deacon writes, the policy worked a little too well, with Svatislav ultimately becoming far too strong. Deposing the Bulgarian Tsar Boris II, before allying with various remnants of Bulgaria left intact after his rampage and going to war against the empire. In turn, the Byzantines made deals with their own Bulgarian allies, leading to a vicious war in the Balkans that would only end 50 years later with the final subjugation of the region by the Emperor Basil II. To the west, tensions flared up with the Holy Roman Empire, in truth a Germanic kingdom claiming to be the descendant of ancient Rome. Disagreements in part helped by misunderstandings between ambassadors such as Liatprand of Cremona, who leaves us a vicious account of Nicephorus, which you can listen to right now over on our second channel, Voices of the Past. 
Eventually, tensions between the two empires escalated into all-out war in southern Italy. Though ultimately no full-scale engagements were fought between the two sides, the bad blood between them would lead to a century of instability in southern Italy that ultimately gave a new group an in. The Normans. By early 968, despite his incredible victories in expanding the territories of the empire, Nicephorus had not only alienated the people of Constantinople, but his own supporters too. Nevertheless, undaunted, he set out on the last of his great campaigns in the east, taking advantage of Saif al-Dwala's death to lay waste the borderlands of Aleppo and to set up a siege of the city of Antioch, a huge symbolic prize. Antioch was one of the big five cities of Christianity and the big three of the Eastern Roman Empire of old, the other being Alexandria in Egypt. In ancient days, the centre of several continent-spanning empires, by the 10th century, Antioch was in truth little more than a provincial backwater of the Islamic world, though it still had incredible prestige ascribed to it by the Romans. Phocas wanted the city unharmed, and he could afford to wait and starve out the defenders leaving his subordinate, Michael Bortzes, to watch over it and wait in a newly constructed castle outside the city walls. To the north, however, the emperor had more pressing concerns. Eastern Europe was in chaos. Svatislav now ravaged his way across the Balkans, forging an empire to rival Byzantium and coming dangerously close to the imperial capital. Bortzis, meanwhile, successfully took Antioch in a surprise attack against Phocas's orders. Rather than being rewarded for his feat, he was stripped of his command. Perhaps as Zimisces had been before him. Though this time, the political atmosphere had definitely changed. Replaced as domestic of the East by the eunuch Petros, Michael Bortzis became yet another name on the list of people with grievances against the Emperor. Finally, in December 969, under the cover of darkness, John Zimisces, recently escaped from his house arrest in Anatolia, and with the aid of his one-time comrade, the court eunuch Basil Lecapanos, broke into the imperial capital with a handful of picked men. It was an incredibly risky move, but ultimately it was one that paid off. They found Nicephorus asleep on the floor of his private chapel, a place he liked to go most evenings to pray. And within a matter of hours, his head hung from the walls of the palace. Had he been an unpopular figure, Zimisky's coup would have failed. Fortunately, he was charismatic and loved, and effectively took up the position of his predecessor in a remarkably smooth transition, with the young emperors of the Macedonian clan still retaining their positions in the line of succession. Nicephorus Phocas, who only reigned as emperor for six years, but was in charge of the military for 14, had been wildly successful in expanding the empire, 
though now wars raged on almost every single front. Hated as a tyrant towards the end of his reign, many centuries would pass before the long-term benefits of Nicephorus's expansionist policies were finally realised. Today, he is generally remembered as one of the greatest of all Byzantine emperors. This video was sponsored by The Great Courses Plus, quite simply one of the greatest learning resources in the world. You can find more than 11,000 lectures on practically any subject you can think of, in video and audio format by the leading experts in the world. You can access all of it seamlessly on your phone, your tablet and your computer. This is a university level education at a fraction of the price. Over the past year, The Great Courses Plus has become one of my go-to sources for information. One course in particular that I've absolutely loved has been Professor Kenneth Hall's definitive series on the Vikings. I keep going back to this course and every time I do, I learn something new. Whether you're an expert or a complete beginner, these courses are for you. You can help me out and get yourself some free knowledge by signing up today to a free trial of The Great Courses Plus by clicking on the link in the description below or by going to thegreatcoursesplus.com forward slash history time.